do make sure you have Acts chapter 2 in front of you. Uh, Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that yours are the words of eternal life. Father, thank you that you have given us your spirit to help us understand those words. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit this evening, we would see Christ clearly and love him more because of what we see. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, how did I end up here? How did I get here? I don't mean, how did you end up here this evening? Hopefully you know how you came from your house to church this evening. But how did I end up here at a church of all places? How did I end up sitting in a room with a bunch of other people, singing about, talking about, hearing about a man that lived over 2,000 years ago? How did I end up here? How did I end up becoming a Christian? And as you ask yourself that question, I'm sure all sorts of different people might come to mind. Maybe you can think of your parents telling you about Jesus right from a young age. Maybe a youth leader or a school teacher. Maybe a friend. There'll be all sorts of people, won't there? All sorts of people we can think of who told us about Jesus at different stages in our life. But then what about those people? How did they hear about Jesus? Who told them? And before that, who told the person who told the person who told you about Jesus? It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it, to be able to trace back through history, trace back and see how the gospel eventually came to you. It'd be sort of a a spiritual, who do you think you are, wouldn't it? And the end of the trail, well, it would lead all the way back to a small group of men and women, probably similar size to us this evening, sitting in an upstairs room, scared, confused, and not really sure what to do next. In fact, if you ask any of the two billion Christians that live around the world today, their story would trace back to this small little group of people sitting in a room wondering what to do next. It would trace back to Acts chapter 1. You see, in Acts 1, we read about the very beginning of what we now call the church. Jesus Christ has been crucified, executed by the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, killed for crimes he didn't commit. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No, no, three days later, Jesus rose to new life. He, he rose and he appeared to his followers and many more people. He appeared to them and he explained that, well, that his death was no accident. It was no uh, miscarriage of justice. Actually, in the end, his death was all part of the plan, all part of the mission that involved dying in the place of guilty people. The mission that involved taking the punishment that, that we deserve for rejecting God and then instead offering forgiveness and new life to anyone who would trust in him. That was Jesus' mission. Luke, the author of Acts, explained all of that in his gospel, Luke's gospel. That was the mission. And now at the start of Acts, we see it continue. We see the risen Lord Jesus tell the disciples, now it's over to you. 
He's about to leave. Jesus is going to return to his father. And now it's the disciples' job to take the gospel, to take this news, this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and to proclaim it to the whole world. They would start in Jerusalem, that is where they are at the moment, and then they would move out, out to Judea and then to Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. That was the job, the mission that Jesus gives them. And it's a daunting one. After all, there's just a few of them and a whole world to tell. A world that really doesn't seem to want anything to do with this Jesus bloke. After all, they've just put him to death. But as we keep seeing in this series, Jesus reassures them. He says he will send the Spirit. The Spirit who we've seen back in John's Gospel will strengthen them, help them, empower them in the task that Jesus has for them. And so the disciples wait. And they wait. And they wait. And you can imagine, can't you, what it must have been like for them, uh, what they must have been thinking. What would it be like when the Spirit comes? How are we going to know? What does he look like? How will we recognize him? What if we miss it? Gathered together in that upstairs room, they wait. And they wonder. Wonder what to do next. Wonder what's going to happen next. And then at the start of chapter 2 that Danny has just read, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit finally arrives. And he doesn't arrive quietly. So just look back there with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting in. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's no missing the Spirit's arrival, is there? There's no, oh, whoops, there there it was, been and gone. No, the Spirit's arrival is unmissable. There's fire and wind and tongues. But this isn't God just being dramatic for the sake of it. No, the Spirit comes in this way to teach a lesson to show the disciples why he has come, what he's here for, what he's come to do. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening thinking about. What do we learn from this dramatic day, this day of Pentecost? What do we learn about the Spirit's arrival all those years ago? And how does that help us think through this idea of mission, of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? And so the first thing we see is the Holy Spirit's arrival shows us that God is present with his people. I don't know if you're into watching big sporting events on TV, but most big sporting events nowadays, they begin with a big entrance, don't they? As the the players run out of the tunnel, there's flames and fireworks all going off. It's a big dramatic entrance. And on first reading, we might think that's what's going on in Acts chapter 2. God has brought out the pyrotechnics for the big arrival. But whilst wind and fire might seem a little bit random to us, it wouldn't have done to the Jews of the day. You see, these were signs of God's presence, 
signs in the Old Testament that God was present with his people. It's a bit like a wedding. We, you know, if you've been to a wedding, everyone is there in the church. They're, they're sitting, waiting for the thing to start, waiting eagerly for the bride to arrive. And then suddenly you start to see the signs, don't you? Uh, the vintage car might pull up in the drive. Uh, the photographer starts getting a little bit excited and, and snapping away quickly. The music begins to play, and then you catch a glimpse of the white dress out the back. Signs that the bride has arrived. And here, the wind and the fire, they were recognisable signs that God had arrived. Just think back, if you know the Old Testament, to Exodus and Moses and his first encounter with God in a burning bush. Or how God led the Israelites out through the desert by a great pillar of fire at night. And then at Mount Sinai, God's presence was symbolized again by fire coming down on the mountain. Fire is a sign of God's presence. However, what's different at Pentecost in Acts 2 is the difference that his presence has. You see, in the Old Testament, when people encountered the presence of the Lord like this, their reaction was usually terror. It usually involved a lot of running and hiding and fainting and even dying. And that's because, as the prophet Isaiah realized, we humans are far too unclean to stand in the presence of a holy God. When faced with a vision of the Lord, Isaiah cries, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah knew that sinful people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And so when God's presence filled the Holy of Holies in the temple, well, a huge curtain had to be put up to keep people out, to prevent them from being destroyed. And yet here in Acts, we read of the Holy Spirit arriving, of God being powerfully present. But rather than being struck down or or terrified, the disciples They're overjoyed. Verse 11, they rejoice, they they praise God, they declare his wonders. Why this reaction here? Well, it's all to do with what Jesus has already achieved. As I said, Luke, the, the author of Acts, has just finished his gospel, just finished explaining that through Jesus' death on the cross and through his resurrection, it was now possible for people to have their sins forgiven, possible to be made clean, and therefore have access to even a relationship with a holy God. Through Jesus' death on the cross and the power of the Spirit, we're made into new people, forgiven people, cleansed people, people who are acceptable to this holy God. And it's that new life that that the wind represents in Acts 2. Again, think back to Ezekiel and and the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel has this vision uh, of a, a valley of dry bones. And in the vision, God breathes on the dead dry bones in the valley with his wind like breath. And the result is that amazingly, miraculously, the corpses, the bones, they're brought to life. 
And that was a vision that Ezekiel had, a vision that promised that one day God would breathe this spiritual life into his people. And that's what we see happening here at Pentecost. In John chapter 20, Jesus had promised that he, to his disciples that he would breathe his spirit on them. And that is what's going on. As we hear this rushing wind, we see Jesus doing just that. And the result is there in verse four. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but as you read those things, it may be a chapter of the Bible that you're familiar with. I often fail to grasp just how amazing this really is. We've skimmed in just a few minutes a couple of Old Testament passages, but here in Acts 2, we, we need to see that, well, that we see the all-powerful, perfectly holy God, the God who couldn't be approached or even looked at without perishing. That God comes to be present with his people. And this time it's not in a tent or in a temple, but he actually comes to live in them by his spirit. The God who could only be approached once a year by the high priest after multiple sacrifices now comes to live inside this ragtag bunch of disciples as they sit terrified in their living room. What an amazing day that must have been. No wonder they are filled with praise for God. But then what about us today? What about us? Should, should we expect something similar? Should we expect uh, tongues of fire uh, and rushing wind? Well, what does Acts 2 mean for us today? Well, in one sense, Pentecost, it was a unique historical event. Like Jesus' birth and death and resurrection and ascension, these were unrepeatable events. And so the arrival of the Spirit was, well, it was simply God's next stage in salvation history. It was unrepeatable. Uh, but in another sense, this moment represents the beginning of a new era, a new age for God's people, the age of the Spirit. And this is the age that we live in today. Just like the disciples, we live in the period of time when God has come to live in the hearts of his people. Of course, there were, there were certain things the disciples experienced that were unique, such as the wind and the fire, to, to mark the beginning of this era. Some things were unique, but there was much that is the same. You see, every single Christian has the Spirit, and that means every Christian experiences the new life, the new purpose, and the new power that the Spirit brings. We don't receive the Spirit after a period of time. We don't have to reach some sort of level of holiness or spirituality. We don't need another baptism to receive the Spirit. No, the New Testament is clear. Our experience today is the same as the 3,000 believers mentioned at the end of Acts chapter 2. The 3,000 that received the Spirit the moment they repented, the moment they trusted in Jesus and so received forgiveness for their sins. And so if you're a Christian here this evening, you might not have seen tongues of fire. You might not have heard rushing wind. But I hope you've seen, as we've gone through this series this summer, that you do have the Spirit living in you. 
The Spirit, who we've seen, unites us to God, brings about this personal, intimate relationship with a holy God. The Spirit who helps us in holiness, helps us to live like our Lord Jesus. And the Spirit who gives us boldness to speak about Jesus. And it's boldness that leads to the second thing we see in Acts 2 uh, as the Spirit arrives. And that is God's power for mission. You see, the disciples' experience on that day, the experience of forgiveness and new life in the Spirit, that was never meant to be an experience that they kept just for themselves. No, this was something that needed to be shared, something the whole world needed to hear about. And so as we saw at the very beginning of Acts, Jesus commissions his disciples to take this message, to take this gospel, and to tell as many people as possible. And they would do that in the power of the Spirit. Just look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 1 verse 8, Jesus says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit arrives in Acts chapter 2 and then we immediately see that, that purpose being, being worked out. So look again at verse 4, Acts chapter 2 verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. It's just days after Jesus' commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and then immediately after that Pentecost experience, what do they do? They begin to speak. They begin to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit. And as they do it, there are people from different nations, different nationalities, all who can understand what is being said. Which means here in Acts 2, in this day of Pentecost, we get this glimpse, this foretaste of the Spirit's goal. We kind of get a picture of the end, of where Jesus' mission is going to end up. You see in that, that list of countries uh, in verses 9 and 10, we see places from the north and the south, the east and the west. We see poor places and powerful places, big nations and small nations. And all of that symbolizes the truth that one day, as we read about in Revelation 7, there will be this great multitude, this number that no one can count from every tribe and nation, every people and language, all praising God. And so again, in the Spirit's arrival, in this dramatic, multi-language, multi-national event, we see the purpose for the Spirit's coming. The purpose is to empower the disciples in this mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that is essentially the story of Acts. It begins here with them preaching in Jerusalem. But then the Spirit-filled disciples, well, they, they take the gospel out to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then eventually to Rome, to the capital of the empire. And the amazing thing about Acts is that we see that nothing and no one 
is able to stop this gospel. Uh, the apostles, uh, the disciples, they, they face lots of opposition. They face religious opposition. They face economic opposition, internal and external opposition, even meteorological opposition. Uh, and despite it all, the gospel keeps on spreading. The repeated refrain in Acts is that the people believe the gospel and the word of God continue to spread. But the big message is clear. The gospel is unstoppable. The gospel is unstoppable. But that isn't because of the disciples. It is not because they were particularly outgoing, bold people. Remember, the story starts with them all uh, hiding in an upstairs room, not really sure what to do. It's not because they were well-trained, well-educated speakers. No, in Acts 4, the Sanhedrin are shocked as they hear Peter and John preach because they are unschooled, ordinary men. The gospel spreads not because of human strength or skill, but because of the power of the Spirit, working through weak, ordinary people. And so as we read through Acts, which I, I really recommend doing, just taking some time to read through the whole thing, well, we should be encouraged. We should be emboldened as we remember that the same spirit that we read about here is in us. You see, Acts ends with the gospel arriving in Rome, the place that symbolizes the ends of the earth. But clearly it was only symbolic, there was more work to be done. Many more people and many more places needed to hear the gospel before it ever reached a little place in southwest London called Chessington. There was much more work to be done. And there is still more work to be done. There are still plenty more people that need to hear about Jesus. And our role each one of us here this evening, our role is to pick up where the apostles left off, to continue preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when we put it like that, at least to me, it seems like an impossibly big task, doesn't it? After all, the church is so small and the world is so hostile, so apathetic, it doesn't want to know. And so it can seem like an impossible mission. And if it were down to us, it would be. But just like the disciples, we have been given the Spirit. The Spirit who empowers us for mission. Which means our job, before we do anything else, is to pray. To pray as the believers did in Acts chapter 4, that the Spirit would make us bold in speaking about Jesus. We need to pray for the Spirit's help. And then we need to speak. Rico Tice often says we need to cross the pain line and actually speak about Jesus. Not just speak about church, not just speak about community or activities or events, as good as all those things are, but actually speak about Jesus. We all know that's the hard bit, don't we? But we need to do it because as we saw a few weeks ago, it's as we speak about Jesus that the Spirit works in the hearts of people we're speaking to. 
It's the Spirit who gives us the boldness, the, the courage to actually mention his name. And then it's the Spirit who does the work of convicting people of sin and converting them to Christ. We need to speak. And so what does that mean for us this evening? What does it mean, what does this mission of, of taking the gospel, this huge thing of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, mean for Monday morning this week? I was thinking about this uh, over the week. I had some um, family staying. And this is one of those things that I thought about in hindsight uh, and wish I had done. But perhaps a good place to start is to take a moment now and think of someone who you're going to see over the summer that doesn't know Jesus. It might be a family member who's coming to visit or a friend that you're going on holiday with. It might be a neighbour that you keep on bumping into out the front of your house. It, it might be a colleague or a classmate. But just take a moment and think of someone. Think of them and then pray. Pray and ask the Spirit to give you the courage to speak to them this summer. Pray that the Spirit would give you that nudge, uh, that push to, to go through the awkwardness or, or, or the potential cold shoulder and actually say something to them about Jesus. And then pray that the Spirit would use your stumbling effort that will probably come out as some sort of garbled thing that you didn't really mean, but you, you thought you'd give it a go. Pray that the Spirit would use that to help that person to see Christ more clearly, even to come to trust in him. That would be a great thing to pray this summer, wouldn't it? As we think about this big mission, that would be something to pray on Monday morning. But then don't just pray. Remember to actually speak. Because Jesus has commissioned his people to keep spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that will only happen as we continue in this task of speaking about him. We need to speak about Jesus. But as we do so, we need to remember that we don't speak on our own. We need to remember that we have been given the spirit to empower us in that work. We have the same spirit as Peter and John, as Stephen and Paul and Lydia and Phoebe and Barnabas and Philip and all the rest that we read about in Acts. We have that same spirit in us. The spirit who gave them the courage and the ability to speak the gospel to anyone and everyone from beggars to emperors, from individuals to crowds of thousands. We have that spirit. And that same spirit will use us at home, at work, at school, in Jacob's well, at, football, at a football club, in the pub, with our neighbours, with our friends, with our family. The spirit is the spirit of mission. The one who is at work in and through his people to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. So let's pray that the spirit would use us this summer. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we think about this task, again, it just seems so big. Father, just that conversation with a family member or a friend seems so big. 
And so we thank you that Acts reminds us that we have this same spirit, your spirit, living in us. And we ask that the spirit would give us the boldness to speak about Jesus. As we think about those different people that we know now, Holy Spirit, please give us the courage to talk about Jesus to them. Holy Spirit, please bring them to see Jesus clearly for themselves. We ask for his name's sake. Amen.